been doing just so you can have something solidified to hold on to as you go through First John. There's several things you can know for sure, without a doubt. Um, there's five, yay, six things that you can know, and actually more than that, but the ones we just like to highlight, um, you can know from, if you look in chapter 5 of First John, um, you can know that you have eternal life, which is a foundational pillar of our Christian walk, um, something that we have that the world doesn't, can't offer you, that you can uh, put your faith into. You know that if you ask anything of him according to his will, he hears you. Uh, we don't serve a distant God that doesn't know who we are, but we serve one that is very near and listens to our calls. And if we know that we have the request which we have asked from him, so he doesn't just hear you and ignore you, uh, but he hears you and he takes heed of your word. Um, you think of David and all the times he pleaded to God. God listens to you when you talk to him, and he will answer your request um, if they are made from a place of faith and of trust in God. And we know that everyone born of God does not continue in sin. So most of us are coming, when you come to Jesus, you're coming from a life that was anti-Christ, that was against him. And now you're trying to live for him, and you have this hope that you don't have to remain in this life of sin. You do continue to make mistakes along the way, but that's not the life in which you live in. You live in a much stronger hope. And we can know that we are of God. And we went through this um, idea of children of God versus children of the devil. And you can know where your, where your heritage lies, where your lineage is at. That you belong to Yahweh Almighty and that Jesus has redeemed us and placed us into his own family. Um, and then finally, the last one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Uh, you get to have a personal relationship with the incarnate God, um, unlike anything else you'll ever experience, and it will be the, the pinnacle piece of your faith, I think, that will hold you through all the storms and through all the chaos of your life. Yeah. Well, if you take uh, your Bible and turn over to First John chapter 4, it's where we're going to find ourselves today, uh, and we'll, we'll spend a little time in chapter 4 and a little time in chapter 5. Today is our last theme in First John. So we will actually complete the letter of First John, and then next week we'll do Second John, and the week after that, Third John, and then we'll, we will have said we have spent some time with John this year, <laughs> and that takes us to the end of this study. But today, in your own Bible or on your app or however you read that, I want you to find the text. We're going to read that together in just a moment. Uh, and remember that here in First John, as Tim was saying, we've gone over several themes so far. And we've had a chance to hear John speak to us or share with us the same thing that was shared with those very first century Christians. And in reading through 1 John, remember this is a demonstrative letter. John is just demonstrating for you what you already know. And he's just reminding you this is what you know. And so he, he allowed us there at first to imagine what it's like to walk in the garden again, to walk in the light of God, totally exposed to God, unashamed, he said, imagine what that's like. That's what you are made for. And John throws up his arms and says, look at how much God loves you, that you would be called a child of God, and that's exactly what we are. And we talked about how we live, though, in this world where there's this distinction between those who are children of God versus the seed of the serpent or those who are you know, descendants of the evil one. And we live within this constant conflict. But then the main themes in John are, that you can know who the children of God are. You can know that you are a child of God based on following two things that God gave as commandments. And the first of those we talked about a couple weeks ago, which was uh, we lay down our very selves for each other. That is a clear sign that we are children of God. And so that's the first sign. And then the second one is today, there's something that we hold as absolutely true. 
that we have put our firm conviction in something as being absolutely true, and that's what we're going to see today. So if there's anything that you absolutely should remember from the letter of 1 John, it's the testimony that you hear being read today. So let's start by reading a passage here. This is going to be in 1 John 4. I'm actually going to back up just for context and maybe read the verse right before it. Uh, But imagine for a minute what it's like, you don't have to imagine this, to live in a world where there are all of these competing forces trying to influence what you believe is true. You probably didn't think about this, but there are all kinds of forces that led to you deciding what you were going to wear today. Some of those were atmospheric forces, (laughs) you know, the temperature. (laughs) Uh, But there are also forces at work that you didn't think about, marketing forces that led you to buy that particular outfit. There's something that led you to purchase and then drive the particular car that you did today, to live in the part of town that you live in. Uh, There are all kinds of these forces that are at work that influence your political beliefs and your personal beliefs and your education and what you do for a job. There are all of these, can you imagine, all of the forces that are at work, the market forces, the social forces, the political forces, economic forces that are influencing what you are to believe is true. Now roll back the calendar to the first century and realize the same forces were at work here in the what is it, western side of the peninsula that is modern-day Turkey. Same forces at work, and it's into that setting that John, now the oldest follower of Christ from the beginning, is writing a letter to say, don't believe everything you hear. And let's listen to how he says that. So verse 24 of chapter 3 says, whoever keeps his commandments, remember there's two, first, love one another, second, believe that Jesus is the Christ. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, let's take a minute to go through that particular part of the passage today. Maybe we should just start with what, what are these spirits that John is, that John is talking about? Uh, well, yeah, it seems a little vague at first when you hear the word spirit. I think uh, our our kind of joke was that it sounds like he's talking about the things, you know, you have the angel on one side and the devil on the other, and they're whispering in your ear, uh, these different spirits trying to convince you to do things. Um, but then you realize that the word spirit is this word pneuma, and pneuma has all kinds of connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a lot of depth and breadth, and so it doesn't necessarily 
refer to something of a spiritual nature as much as, as you were implying, the force behind that nature. So I think uh, your suggestion was instead of using the word spirit, use the word force in that passage. Um, and it starts to then make a lot of sense in our own context of the things that are pushing you. Uh, like you said, the things that motivate you to make decisions in your life. I think John is warning you as you are pushed into making choices, weigh what's pushing you. Uh, what's forcing you into that, and what is it trying to do for you? Yeah, do you remember when we were actually in the gospel according to John, we we spent really a whole class on this word spirit. Does anybody remember that? And do you remember the, the definition of spirit, what the word spirit means at its essence? And I'm freeing you here from the, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit here. I'm just saying the word spirit. Whenever you meet that word in Scripture, do you remember what it, what that word means? You remember if I say, if I say, what's that? Life. life. Now that's good. We talked about life separately, and in spirit is a part of life. In fact, all of you right now have life, and I know that because the spirit you have a spirit within you, and that's the way the Greeks would say it. In fact, just here's the way to test that. Everybody, take a deep breath. Hold your hand up and blow out. Did you feel that go against your hand? Some of you didn't do that because you thought this is silly. This is a Bible class. It's not. But you just inspired, and then I would be testing your expiration, right? And, and in the medical note, that's what I would say. Yeah. You know, it has no problems with inspiration or expiration. Uh, what you just inspired and outspired. Do you hear the word spirit in there? You inspirited, and then you expirited. The word spirit means wind or breath. It simply means, in the classic sense, it just means a force that can be measured but not seen. And so I think I told you about my dad. He's an aerospace engineer. And uh, one time we asked, uh, the grandkids asked, what do you do? And he said, I have, he, he designs airplanes, you know, airplane wings and missiles and stuff. But he says it's based on work they do in wind tunnels. And so he said, I've spent my whole life as an aerospace engineer, a rocket scientist, studying forces that I can measure, but I cannot see. I thought, wow, that's a great definition of wind or air. And that's the word uh, that's used here. It says, don't believe every wind. Don't believe every spirit. Now, that spirit can have a personality. And he mentions the name of at least one here, which is the Antichrist. Now, what do you think of when you think of Antichrist? Oh, man, that's a loaded word. Um, (laughs) I don't know a lot of your guys' backgrounds, but that always, you know, uh, growing up in a... Uh, community church style high school uh, where I went and a lot of the other schools in town that was always talking about the rapture that was talking about uh, some guy who's going to come and dominate the stock market and he's going to lead the world into war and there'll be a thousand year reign and that was always who this guy was it was yeah so there was always this idea that he's some evil person that's going to come and just destroy the world yeah And, and it's interesting that we tend to think of antichrist when you read it here as if this is an entity directly opposed to christ as if Jesus is the superhero, and then you have the anti-hero, and that's the antichrist. You know, it's in our culture, that's the way this is developed. But this word, antichrist, this entity, uh, is only mentioned in John, in your New Testament. He mentions it five times, most of them here in this book, uh, or letter of First John, and again, in, think of Second John, one time it's mentioned there. But John almost makes up this word. It's really just one word, just like it is in English, anti-Christ. And that's a transliteration. The actual word is Antichristos. It's the same, same word. So you get to hear the very same word John used. 
but because I think of our culture, we tend not to fully grasp what that means. This word is not referring to a person who is equal to but opposite Christ. This is referring, that word, and maybe it's helpful to understand that the word anti in the, in the first century world did not necessarily mean against the way we think of it. It actually meant in place of. So we won't spend time going here, but it, you see this throughout the New Testament where it'll say that Aristarchus served in place of his father Herod. And the word in place of there is anti his you know, father Herod. It doesn't mean he was against his father, it just meant he was placed there. You remember when Jesus quoted the Old Testament and said, uh, you have heard that it is said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, the word for there is actually the word anti. That the old law was that if you poked out my eye, well, I got to poke out your eye. But the word there is anti, meaning an eye for or in place of an eye. So in place of my eye, <laughs> we're going to take out your eye. And so it meant sort of substitute. And if you understand that, then it makes a little more sense that what John's talking about here is saying there are forces at work that are going to try to take the reality that Jesus is the Messiah and put something in the place of the Messiah. And so think of Antichrist as replacing the Messiah, a fake, a counterfeit, which explains why the whole book ends with him saying, keep yourself from idols, from anything that is artificial. So Antichrist, think of that maybe as artificial Christ. <laughs> is that a good way to think of that? <laughs> Something in place of. Well, and I think that, that when, you, when we talked about that, it kind of it changes the whole definition of the word. Because uh, I think, at least where I was coming from, if you see it as, a, as an opposing force to Jesus, then you, it's clearly his, his enemy. He's mm-hmm. easily uh, recognizable. But when you see it more as a, it's something being, being suggested to you in place of, of Messiah, then it's different. It's subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he's talking about false prophets coming and trying to convince you to replace Jesus with something else, and, not, and, you, and it's easy to say, oh, well, I would never do that. Well, we, we do it all the time. And, and it's not because someone's shoving it down your throat, but it's because they're slowly manipulating you and deceiving you into believing in something that you shouldn't put your weight in. You shouldn't put your whole, your whole self upon. And so seeing it less of, oh, it's clearly my enemy versus it's, it's something that is trying to trick me. It's something deceitful, uh, which you can't help but go back to Eve a little bit, but we won't do that. Um, but there's, there's, you, you have to be on guard. And so that's when um, he's talking about as false prophets come, most you won't always recognize them. You won't always be able to tell who they are, which is why you have to weigh and test what they're saying. Yeah. Which is why this word test uh, needs ah, to be explained a little that's bit. That's right. More. And you just pointed out there's not just one antichrist. This actually goes back to chapter two. You meet this word earlier in First John, and he says, "Just as you've heard the antichrist is coming, many antichrists have come." And so you're correct to say there's this idea that there will be all these influences over. What you're believing is true. And so John says, just test it. Every day, train yourself to, to, to not believe every spirit or force that's influencing you, but test the spirits. And so what does that mean, <laughs> to nah. test? Now, this was cool because you came uh, across the fact that the, the New Testament actually uses two words for how to test something. Yeah. Talk a little bit about those two words. So I can't say either of them correctly. I think I call, I use one as Dokimon, but that's not how you say it. How you say that one? Yeah. Dokimazo. Dokimazo. And yeah. then the other one I call it 
Pirazzo, which I don't think is right either. How do you say that? Pirazzo. Yeah, he's better at that. Yeah. Um, so you come across these two sort of root words in the New Testament that talk about testing things. And the, the D one is the one that's referenced here in First, in first John 4. Um, the other one, the Pirazzo one, is usually associated with temptation. So it has a lot of references to if Satan's tempting you, if something's drawing you into bad behavior... And so you see that a lot of times used with Satan, with the devil, with people falling. Um, it's referenced a lot when the Pharisees are tempting Jesus, or testing Jesus, sorry, and then when Satan uh, tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Um, but the other one, the dokimazo, uh, mm-hmm. that one is, it's, it doesn't have a real equivalent in English. Um, it's yeah. just weird, because both words will be translated in a lot of different ways. Uh, both will be test or something along those lines. Uh, but the dokimazo one is, is trying to um, you take you you analyze something. Um, you take the information that you're given. Uh, you weigh it against something that is already approved or that you know to be true, and then you see if they match up. Um, and then I think the best analogy was the coin analogy, which I think yeah. you have to talk about. Well, this yeah, yeah, you almost have to there. This is the word dokimazo, and I have to be careful of the younger audience because it sounds way too much like Pokemon, you know. Oh, yeah. But it's not po- But it sounds like that. But it starts with a D, dokimon or dokimazo. Uh, and this is a word that means to examine something to see if it's authentic, if it's counterfeit or not. And the word comes to us out of the ancient Greek marketplace. And it actually referred to coins. So if you were to go into the Agora or the marketplace in any, anywhere in the ancient world, when you walked in with your goods to buy and sell and your coins, you could not go shopping. So this would be like going to a mall. You could not go into any stores until you first went to the Doki Maste, the coin tester, and had your money tested to see if it was counterfeit or not. Because just like today, back then, they had a problem with counterfeiters. If you had coins that were made out of silver, you know there are a lot of ways to counterfeit that. I could plate the outside with silver, it looked silver, feel silver, but the inside is some cheap metal. That would be one way to counterfeit it, but it would weigh a little different. Or the, the, really the classic way of counterfeiting was to take a coin, and if it's made out of silver, you can shave off just a little bit off the side. Just enough. Most people wouldn't notice, but just a little bit. And if I had a 1,000 coins and I shave off just a little bit from all those coins, I'd have a nice little pile of silver here, right? But I still get to use my coins, and you see how they would cheat the system by shaving those off. So when you went into the marketplace, you had to take your coins, and the coin tester would take that coin, and they would weigh it against a standard. And they would drop it, and listen for the ring. And sometimes they would even cut into it to see if it had, you know, if it was plated or not. And if the coin was tr- proven to be true and authentic, then the dokimaste would say, this coin is dokimon. It is tested and approved. But if the coin was found to be counterfeit, they would say it's a dokimon. You know, they put the A in front of it, say it was a dokimon. This is counterfeit. This is tested but not approved. And so that was what the word meant for examining something to see if it was true or not. Uh, And that word came to be applied not just to coins, but by the time we get to New Testament and when they're writing, the, the term began to be applied to people. People could be tested to see if this person is authentic or not. Or ideas could be tested to see if they were authentic or not. And so now you know why John would reach for this word here when he says, don't believe everything you hear, but dokimazo, you test the spirits, these forces behind whatever message is being given. I'm borrowing a little bit here from Paul. You remember uh, in Ephesians when 
Paul says, you realize our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers in this dark world. And so Paul, again, is referring to the same thing John's probably referring to here when he says, it's not the person that you're arguing with that, that you're testing. It's the forces behind the ideas that are influencing. Does that make sense? The, you're, you're, John's just saying, you've got to test these things to see which are giving the true message or not. And I think we've beat on that enough to say, then John says, here's the test. So you, as the coin tester, if you will, of these influences, how do you know if something is from God or not? And in this context anyway, John says, here's one thing that you check for. And what was that? Uh, that if it confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, yeah. which I think is an all-encompassing sort of short phrase of saying, is it referencing Jesus of Nazareth, who, who we have been professing to you, who we've been talking about? Because uh, you're going to get, it, was, it may have had early stages here, but you're definitely going to get it in the years to come of people who just, they claimed he didn't, he didn't come in the flesh. Uh, there's, there's, some, there's a lot of different, different ideas about that, but some people will claim that he was, he was just a man who a spirit came upon him at his baptism, left at his crucifixion, and he wasn't actually the incarnate God. Um, which clearly, you know, stands against what the gospel's trying to tell you. And so there, there's a lot of weight given to, and you see it all throughout the New Testament, of how our acknowledgement that Jesus came in the flesh um, is pivotal uh, to our faith and to our conviction. Um, you see it in Romans a lot. Paul talks about, you know, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, uh, and you will be saved. I mean, he, he puts heavy weight on this confession, uh, which unfortunately, I think, oftentimes just gets allocated to, you know, your, your, your pre-baptism, but this is supposed to be a lifestyle. Um, and it's not an obligatory thing, but it's a natural response to, I think, the salvation power which Jesus gives you. When people ask, why are you, why are you different? Why do you stand out? And it's just by natural reaction. Well, this is why, because of what Jesus done for me. Um, and I think that's important. And one thought, which I guess we didn't talk about yesterday, but um, one thing about testing the spirits, uh, at least from my own perspective, is that that can be daunting at first. It can seem overwhelming. Um, I don't know if any of you have read a lot of the um, articles that talk about why our society today seems to be so much more anxious and stressed out compared to previous. Um, and one of those thoughts was there's so much information out there, you're almost being required to be an expert in everything to actually be able to judge if what you're hearing is true or not. Um, so, and of course, none of us are. And so you just feel overwhelmed uh, by having to decide, is this news real or fake? Should I interpret it? And so I think at first we tend to want to bring that into the scriptures as well. I have to be an expert in the scriptures to be able to test the spirits. And I don't think that's what John's getting at at all. Um, having all of the knowledge is not what makes you a strong Christian. Uh, having a strong relationship with Jesus is what makes you a strong Christian. And so, you know, it is the probably the stereotypical things you think of, prayer, study, and that kind of stuff, but less of a, oh, I have to go find the answer, and more of a, this is the lifestyle I'm choosing to live. So if your Christian walk feels, feels like you're forcing yourself to do it, this test will be hard. But if your Christian walk is because you're excited to live that life and you're hopeful in the Jesus that you proclaim to be in, the test isn't as hard. Yeah. No, that's good. And then that section, as you saw, ended with him saying, well, this is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Uh, notice that John doesn't give you a checklist here. This isn't, that's not the purpose of the letter. The purpose of the letter is John just saying, let me remind you of something you already know. And that is you have access to the creator of the universe. 
learn, train yourself to test things against what you know to be true. And that all starts with Jesus is the, the Messiah. So do you hear that reminder that John is giving you in whatever situation you're in, when you're weighing whatever influences and the many influences, that that doesn't drive you, unlike the culture you live in, to a state of anxiety over what I don't know. It's not about the information. It's about who you know. This is a relationship. And John's saying, you can know. <laughs> and that's what he says at the end of the book. Um, this creator of the universe. And there's something else you can know too. And that is, you can know for sure what God's testimony is. Can I segue into the next section? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- John goes on. This is carrying the same theme. John says, you actually carry within you the most powerful message which should influence the whole world. And this is going to take us over to chapter 5. So let's flip over to John 5. I'm sorry, 1 John 5. 6 through 13. Yeah, do you want to start with 6? <coughs> yeah, 1 John 5, 6. Go Can ahead. I just pause? I always feel like we have to take a word from our sponsor, and that is it is totally unfair <laughs> to read one verse or one paragraph out of a letter and then try to make some intelligent comments about it, unless you've read and reread the entire letter. <laughs> the uh, word from our sponsor is, if you haven't done so already, please read this entire letter and realize the verse that we're dropping into is in this larger context, which we don't have time to necessarily get into now. It doesn't take very long. It's like 15 minutes. 15 minutes or so, yeah. yeah. So uh, so thank you. And now back to our show. <laughs> <laughs> So we're in 1 John 5, verse 6. you want to read that? Uh, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and that in this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Wow. So to me, every time I read the, this letter of John, to me, that's the crescendo moment uh, when, when John gets to this point of saying, God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has a son has life. And then he, in chapter 13, says, and this is something you can know, that you have eternal life. Well, let's back up to the first part of that. We won't spend, we could spend a lot of time here. There's been a lot of ink spilled, and I know you came today anticipating to know what is the water and the blood and the spirit, and who are these who are testifying. Um, what's a short way we're of gonna, answering We're going to skip. <laughs> no, I don't think we should skip. I think we could at least well, comment on it. There's a lot of different opinions. Um, it's not heavily agreed upon what they all mean. Mm-hmm. But there's lot, that doesn't necessarily mean that at least... There, there can be different options, and it seems like it's one of those, whichever one increases your faith and helps you understand the passage better seems to be okay. Yeah, so the, I'll, I'll throw out the opinion that we probably gravitate towards of all the different scholars. When John says, um, think here of a courtroom setting, 
That's what he's bringing to mind. So let's say we're sitting in a courtroom. About 12 of you are going to be selected to be jurors. Thank you for coming you know, today. We're going to present some of the basics of the case first. And John says, there's three witnesses in this case that you're going to hear from first. The water, the blood, and the spirit. And, and you say, okay, well, that would be interesting to hear from them. Well, who is the water, the blood, and the spirit? And, th- and that's where Tim said, we just really don't know what the first readers of this would have thought of when John mentions water, spirit, blood. There are a lot of ideas, all of them good and, and many of them possible. The one that makes the most sense, to me anyway, is that John's probably reminding them that of when he says water, he's reminding them that one of the witnesses of who Jesus is was his baptism. At that moment of the baptism, you remember that's one of the times when God comes and says, this is my son. So that kind of brings that to mind. The, uh, the idea of blood probably is a reference to he was crucified, killed, and everybody knew that, what that involved. And then there's this moment where this is the living Messiah, totally dead. He died. And then when you bring in the spirit at the end, this is the testimony of his resurrection that it was by the Spirit of God that he was raised from the dead. So that's just one possibility, but don't miss this point. In this courtroom setting, John has said, I'm going to give you three witnesses right off the bat. Now, why would he pick three? Do you, do you know? This would mean something to his audience, and this is really the point you should get too, is that he comes out with three uh, It's pretty hard to build your case if you want to make a case and you only have one witness. And in the Old Testament law, you had to have three. So, two, or two or three. Two or three. Yeah, I'm sorry, two. Yeah, you had to have at least two or three if you were going to make any kind of claim or accusation. And that was well written in Deuteronomy, I think, yeah. where he mentions that this is the law. So John's, John's playing off of that. He's saying, yeah, we're going to make a bold claim here. We're going to come with three witnesses. So that's the point you're meant to get, is that we have three witnesses. Well, and, if, and if you had three witnesses that all said the same thing, their testimony was believed, was assumed to be infallible. Yes. It, was, it held truth. You were to take it as concrete, and you couldn't argue it. Yeah. And so John comes in, basically a courtroom setting, and says, all right, give you three witnesses. Jesus is the Messiah. Case closed. But John doesn't stop there. Did you notice what he does? This is the fun part. Judge says, is that, are your case closed? Are you done? And John goes, no. We have one more witness we would like to call to the stand. And who does he call as his last final and firm witness? Did you catch it from the passage? What do you think, Mike? It's God. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call the creator of the universe to sit in the witness stand. And, and John says, if you accept man's testimony, how are you going to weigh God's testimony? I mean, how would you weigh it? I think this is something you can take to the bank. This is something you can put your firm conviction in, put your full weight on. Here's God's testimony. And then let's talk about what is the testimony of God. Well, and we have a little bit of a disconnect too, I think, um, with whoever, you know, the, the early audience of this, if you're getting it from John, John beheld Jesus. He touched him. He saw him. He experienced him. He was there when God spoke at his baptism. He was there when God spoke at his transconfiguration. He's seen, he's heard and experienced literal testimony uh, from God the Father proclaiming this is his son. Uh, We don't have that necessarily same privilege. Uh, We weren't there. We didn't see it. 
Um, we didn't experience it. And so when you read some of this, I think sometimes it's easy to disconnect yourself. Like, how is this evidence? This isn't evidence. This is something written in a book, someone put down, and then you get into that mindset of now I have to be an expert and I have to test this. I have to vet if this witness is, is reliable or not. Um, but I think what, what then we miss is that this idea of witness was a, a big part of their culture. It was a big part of how their society worked. That's why if you had three people who testified to the same thing, it was believable. And then Paul tells us Jesus appeared to, what, 500 people or more after his resurrection? So the witness is reliable. And I think that's a disconnect I had, at least. It's hard to get into that mindset because we read so much. We hear so much. Um, but then to treat these texts in their original context when they were first put out, not in our modern view, uh, but, but to see them as it really is something powerful happening here. You know, that reminded me, too, in verse 10, he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony or has the testimony in himself. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and this is after he says, okay, this is the testimony God is born about his son. Do you know what the other word in the Bible is for uh, testimony? Some of, your, some of your scriptures may use a different word for testimony, and especially in the Old Testament. You know what the word there is for testimony? I bet you could finish this phrase. The, the, uh, you had the Ark of Noah. Forget that one. The Ark of the Covenant. And what does that word covenant mean? In some of your texts, when you read through Exodus, depending on your version, it will say the Ark of the Testimony. And why would they call it the Ark of the Testimony? It was because, remember, after God's meeting with Moses and not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole law ends up being written down. This law was not a law like, you know, we would have today with all the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the volumes and volumes of laws for the U.S. This was a covenant that was written between God and this group of people. It was a testimony. And that testimony technically would be signed by both parties. And that testimony was placed into this ark. And that ark, as it was carried first through the wilderness and then as it rested there in Jerusalem in the temple, in that ark was the testimony. So in Exodus, it's called the ark of the testimony. Now, this is just an illustration. I don't know that this is what John had in mind here, but do you hear the power of this? If John says, and this is, or whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony placed in himself. It's that same idea that this uh, this testimony of God that we trust is now in you. And that brings us to what was that testimony that John mentions? God's on the witness stand. God says this is absolutely true. You can rely on this. And that's our, our next verses there. Uh, Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given concerning his son, and this is the testimony. You ready for it? This is that point where, dun, dun, dun. This is the testimony. God has gave us, or God gave us eternal life. I'm going to pause there first. Back to the garden. Back to that place where sin is washed away totally exposed before God we have access to life into the age God gave us eternal life and then the next phrase and that life is in his son 
That's God's testimony. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's hard to find anything in Scripture that's more cut and dry than that. And then lest you take that the wrong direction, John again demonstrates for you what you're meant to catch. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son so you'll know you have eternal life. And with that, God places that testimony into you. And that, and that makes you something. So, so in this little scene, the word testimony, or the root word of that, occurs, I think, eight or ten times. So you, you get this vibe of a courtroom setting. Eight it's, or ten times in First John. In, well, and just in this passage right here, oh, yeah. just in these few verses. Mm-hmm. And so you had, you had the water, the blood, and the spirit, but there's other witness, and God, but there's another witness. Um, and that, as that testimony gets put inside of you, you become a witness. And that's not a word we use very often, but that you become a, a, a very much one who proclaims that what John is proposing here and what Jesus is claiming is true because your life reflects that. Um, there's a reason why you, you go through a transformation process. There's a reason why we're supposed to look different. Um, if you compare yourself to someone else in the world, you're not supposed to look like them. Not because you're trying to disdain, you want to get away from that, but because you're being turned into something else. And you, and so your very life, your very actions, your very principles, the values that you hold, become a witness that what God is claiming is true because Jesus transforms lives. And so we do not continue to miss the mark. We don't continue to You don't continue sin. in sin. And we love pra- our brother. You practice and righteousness, and then you are righteous by that practicing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a bold claim because um, yeah. it kind of feels pretty heavy at first. Like, oh, I don't want to be a witness to that. I'm going to screw that up. But then you start thinking God has continually used screwed up people throughout the ages. Uh, everyone he ever used was screwed up. But he uses them uh, to fulfill his will. And along the way, a lot of them get better. Yeah. <laughs> not all of them. Uh, but God uses what he has. He's not asking you to be perfect. Uh, but in the process of following him, this perfection seems to start showing itself uh, by how you recognize Jesus as a son and how you love one another. So this is more of a Bible class. It's not a sermon. But if this were a sermon, this is, this is an illustration I would use. Again, John is not necessarily using this illustration, but to emphasize what Tim just said, is uh, you can imagine what that was like in the wilderness for the priest to pick up the ark you know, and walk from one place to the next and walk it into the temple. It was a very holy thing. It's a very special thing. What John is saying here is the equivalent of the testimony of God is put into you. It changes you. It changes what you do, who you listen to, what you consider to be true. It changes your, how you perform at work, at school, in your home. And so it's as if with God's testimony placed into you, imagine this, in the morning when you get up, it's as if the priests come and slide the poles through and they lift you and they take you into your place of work. Or they lift you and take you into school. They take you into your home or into your family. You see the image there. You are a living, breathing, walking <laughs> bearer of this testimony that this life is in his son. Um, anyway, that's the sermon part. And to say, imagine what that's like. This changes. This changes you. And John, John is reminding you of that. And then John ends this book with those five reminders after this. So the first reminder is, you have eternal life. Second reminder, God hears us. Third reminder there, if he hears us, you have what you ask when you uh, uh, speak to God. 
the fourth one is that those who are uh, following God do not continue to sin. Those who are born of God. And the in my fifth yet fifth thing is you are born of God. And then the sixth thing is you can know Him who is true. And John ends this book by saying, "You know this. Keep yourselves from anything counterfeit. Keep yourselves from idols." Well, we wanted to take the last ten minutes <laughs> and let us kind of all reflect. Can we just open it up for a minute here? Mm-hmm. Any uh, this brings us to the end of our study of the letter of First John. Any final reflections or questions? Uh, or just where does where does John's message take you here? Yes, James. Oh, great point. Yeah, James points out that it's not just saying you have eternal life. Don't forget the price paid for this. Is that what you're pointing out? This is through his son, Jesus the Messiah. Yeah, thank you. That's very powerful. Court says that God has placed his testimony in us. What responsibility does that place on us? Kind of reminds me of that old, what is the Spider-Man movie? That with great power comes great responsibility. You know, to have God's testimony placed in you, as Court says, comes with a responsibility. And it's really asking the question, what do I do with that type of message that is placed within me? And uh, I think that speaks to, if I'm reflecting this correctly, exactly what Tim was saying, that this changes us. Well, it makes me think of uh, uh, Jeremiah when he talks about, if I don't speak these words, my bones are set on fire. Um, <laughs> Can't help it. Maybe not that dramatic of a change, but something like that. Jerry. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. He talks about if it, your, you, your prayers are so powerful, you know, you can ask God for something. <laughs> and one of those things is ask that somebody be given life if they have sinned. And then he makes this statement. I'm not talking about that sin that leads to death. <laughs> you know, that's a passage you're talking about. I'm saying for ever sin, what is that? What is that talking about? And I'll give the succinct answer now, and maybe afterwards you and I should spend some time deviling into that. Because it really comes back to, as you read through First John overall, and several of you have asked this question, I think, throughout the, the, the study. So I think it's an important one, maybe even to end on. And that is that recognize John has said there are only two groups of people in the world. Those who are children of God, those who are seeds of the serpent. And what John is, in essence, referring to most likely is saying, I'm not saying you pray for somebody who is clearly a seed of the serpent, that God will make that okay or you know, look over that. He's talking about what John refers to earlier, where he says, yeah, don't, don't go around claiming you haven't sinned. We all sin. But we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's saying, for people that are missing the mark, 
but are still children of God. He said, pray for each other. It's, we see that in other contexts. And I think that's what John's getting at. And then when he gets to that passage, you're meant to have already read through the rest of the letter and caught that, that distinction. Great question. All right, well, let's leave that as a dot, dot, dot uh, question-answer session. If you have questions or ideas or just thoughts and you think, oh, this was powerful, uh, please come share that with us. This will end First John next week. We'll pick up Second John, which will take you two minutes to read at most. And so if you want to read that before next week, we'll do uh, Second John next week. Thank you. Let's prepare for worship.